0: We're going to open with prayer. Does anybody feel like opening? Dear Lord, just thank you for bringing us all here together tonight. Thank you for,
1: Travis, taking time to prepare. And uh, Lord, just pray that you will uh, prepare our hearts to receive the word you want us to receive, Lord. And uh, just pray that throughout our weeks that we'll go out and live a life that brings glory and honor to you. And just thank you for all the blessings you give us, Lord. We pray this in your name. Amen. all right. All
0: right. So tonight... We start in the Garden of Gethsemane. This is where Jesus went to pray. This is where our salvation was actually determined. It was won on the cross. It was sealed in the resurrection. But in this process, this is where he determined to go through it. So although he was resolute to do so, he says in Genesis 3 what he's going to do. He sets that prophecy forward. This is where in his human form... This is the fight or flight moment, and this is where he, he becomes resolute. Jesus prays three times for the cup to pass. In fact, an overview of that is Jesus prays and sweats blood. He asks that this cup be passed from him, and if possible, but he also says, Let your will be done. From this point on, Jesus was resolute in completing the task at hand. He got his answer, this cup cannot pass, and he accepts it with all of his horror. He knew exactly what was going to happen. Nothing surprised him. In that, all three times that he prayed, Jesus, who is part of the Trinity, gets the exact same answer, and that answer is silence. So when sometimes we're praying about things and all we get is silence, he knows what that's all. But he knew what he was tasked with. He knew what he was intended to do. And when you have your marching orders, if you don't get new orders, the old, bar- old orders stand. And so he goes forward. So one other thing is, he's already bleeding. So it wasn't, after the arrest that he started paying for our sins, he starts right here with the weight of it upon his shoulders, actually bringing so much stress that he bleeds blood. So, what cup is Jesus asking to pass? When he says, let this cup pass, he's, is he being figurative? Do we think he's being figurative? Is he being using some language, or is he... Is he actually talking about something? What do we think? Have we ever thought about what he's talking about? Is
1: it a separation from his father?
0: Yeah. Possibly. I, mean, was, like, I, was, I would say that's part of it, yeah. Yeah.
1: God essentially like turning his, you know, face away from.
0: So during the process he's alone, cut off, so that we don't feel it. Okay. Well, when I looked at it, what I found is the answers in the Passover Seder and the Last Supper. What's funny is that sometimes we overlook the Old Testament. And in doing so, I think we miss a lot of the New Testament. Because there are four cups, specific cups in the Passover Seder. The first one is the cup of sanctification. This is the first one that they use. And sanctification is defined as the act of making or declaring something holy first thing they do in the seder is they make something loose. Jesus, in his first miracle, turned ordinary water into wine in Cana. Jesus told Mary, his mother, when she asks him, hey, they're out of wine. His answer is literally, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now, it's not like we would hear in today's world when, when you hear somebody go, woman, no, no, that's not it's a respectful term back then talking to his his mother. So hold on to that statement that he said. My hour has not yet come. Sanctification is the first cup. The second cup is known as the cup of judgment in the Savior. At the last supper, everything goes according to plan, according to what the Jews would, all the disciples would be used to, right up until this cup. Jesus skips this cup. Jesus skips the cup of of judgment and just continues on to where they would wash their hands. So when they would pour water, they would wash hands. But instead of washing hands, Jesus walks over to Peter and starts to wash his feet. Hence Peter, who's probably the, the best thing we have in the Bible to relate to ourselves, just blurts out the first thing that ever comes to his mind. He's the only disciple to tell Jesus, no. He does it several times. Uh, he says, no, you're not washing my feet. Jesus tells him, if I don't wash your feet, you have no part with me. And he goes, oh, my feet, my hands, my head, my whole body, shower. And he goes, no, just your feet, good enough. Okay. So that's what goes on. So now they're thrown for two loops. He skipped a cup of judgment. And he's washed their feet instead of their hands. I take you back to the, the miracle in Cana. John 2.6, it says, They had six water pots. Each could hold 20 to 30 gallons. They filled them to the brim. And these water pots were of stone according to the manner of purification of the Jews. So in his first miracle, he turns water into wine out of pots that are to purify, purify the Jews. I find that pretty interesting. <clears throat> then they take unleavened, unleavened bread, the matzah, <clears throat> that flat stuff that nobody really likes to eat, it's more like a chip. Um, they take it and they break a piece off. They dip it in the bitter herbs, generally horseradish, and they also get the, the concoction of different stuff that's made to look like mud. They put it all together and and that's what they eat next. Rabbis throughout history have said something very interesting. They say if you take that concoction and you offer it to somebody on a chip, it's a sign of love, it's a sign of respect, but it's also a sign of warning. And that's the Jewish tradition that they would have known. So, love, respect, and warning. This is where he says, one of you is going to betray me, and this is who I dipped Dip the chip, and then he hands it to Judas, and he says, do what you're going to do and do it quickly. And the Bible is specific. After he eats the chip is when Satan enters him, and he goes off to betray him. The next one is redemption, the third cup. And this is where Jesus goes into the bread as his body, and the wine as his body, and his blood. And this is where communion is started in the redemption. After this, everything kind of falls into place, and they would say it goes normal. The last one will be the cup of blessing in the Savior. So, so to hold on to that. My hour has not yet come again in the first miracle. Now, I may need you to pronounce some things for me here because I looked up the medical term for sweating blood, and they're up there. Is that hematidrosis? It helps. Okay, say that louder, somebody. All right, he mad at hydrosis. This is a very rare medical condition that causes you to ooze or sweat blood from your skin when you're not cut or injured. It can look like blood, bloody sweat, or sweat with droplets of blood in it. Doctors don't know exactly what triggers this, but in part because it's so rare. They think it could be related to the body's fight or flight response where tiny blood vessels in the skin break open and the blood inside then may get squeezed out through sweat glands. Or there might be an unusual little so within the structure of your skin. These could collect the blood and let it leak into the follicles where the hair grows or onto the skin surface itself. Sometimes it seems to be caused by an extreme distress or fear, such as facing death, torture, or severe ongoing abuse. It's probably where the term sweating blood, meaning a grateful effort, comes from. And that is a quote directly from WebMD. I'd say that kind of fits. The garden. So, the true battle was won in prayer, even before the fight began. Then the arrest, trial, beating, and crucifixion, he already knew and intended to go through it, strengthened through prayer, even though he got no answer. John eighteen three. Then Judas, having received a detachment of troops, And officers from the chief priests and Pharisees came there with lanterns, torches, and weapons. Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that would come upon him, went forward and said to them, Whom are you seeking? A detachment is about six hundred troops. So they had six hundred troops to go after one man in a garden with eleven of his buddies. They answered him. Now not all went, keep that in mind, not all went. That's just the authorized authorized strength for this operation. They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am. The he is generally left off. They added in, in a lot of the translations. I put it in here so you can see it, but it's generally I am. And Judas, who betrayed him, also stood with them. Now, when he said to them, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. Then he asked them again, who are you seeking? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus answered, I have told you that I am he. This is where the he actually comes in. It's a different word in the Greek. Therefore, if you seek me, Let these go their way. That goes back to, at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow. I don't know about you, but if I went to arrest somebody and he said I'm him and everybody I'm with fell down immediately, I don't know, something is going wrong here. They continue on, but just something interesting. So what type of people came with Judas to make the arrest? Who do you think came with him? Um.
1: It's, it was like a thousand Roman, it was a battalion, right? So it was like about a thousand yeah. Roman soldiers.
0: Yeah, about 600 were authorized. Not all of them came to the garden, but but they were on standby.
1: It's like, that's amazing. We you read over it, that's just for him to say he was basically how crazy he was, God, just by saying, I am. Yeah. Jews don't even use the term I am because it's blasphemy. I, mean, I don't know if
2: everyone knows that, but
0: yes. that's a good point to bring up. So we have the leading priests, the captains of the temple guard, and the elders. Part of the ones described as actually coming into the garden. The rest are waiting or standing by whatever. At this point, Jesus is taking to Ananias, which is Caiaphas's, who's the high priest at the time. That's his father-in-law. He questions Jesus. And a guard strikes him with an open hand. This is the first strike. So just as all sins start small, generally with a thought, the punishment also began with an open hand. And then sent to Caiaphas. Caiaphas is the high priest. This is where the study tends to start to get personal. This is where the payment for our sin takes place. So... Ask yourself, how much did it cost? I've done it. It's not easy. I don't know that we've ever, we will ever truly comprehend the actual amount that he went through. But that's kind of what we're going to try and, and get to tonight. Anybody not seen The Passion of the Christ? The movie? Okay, it's uh, it was, got a little bit of, people upset by its violence and in all the descriptions it didn't go 10 percent of the way to what actually happened and that was hard to watch so kind of keep that in mind Um, I've looked at it as a sometimes as a perspective of you know your best friend how would that look if it's your son or your your brother or or whoever so not only does it kind of get personal It should be, because it was, and it was for us. He did this for us so that we don't have to get through So this is a price that was paid for us. So Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin, which is 70 people, convict Jesus of blasphemy. To show their guilty verdict, they spit on him, they strike him in the face, and they pull out his beard. 71 people. And... He's now been struck seventy-two times. He's had been spit on by each person. They would come up, slap him, uh, spit on him. You know, they might grab a few hairs. They might grab a handful, and they'll yank, yank his beard. So keep in mind, that's at least seventy-one different people in a line. They each come up and declare their guilty verdict personally. And Jesus is then sent to Pilate who finds no guilt in him. He's trying to get out of this whole thing, so he sends him to Herod. Herod wants to meet him. He says, I have wanted to meet this family. But when Jesus won't perform a miracle in front of him, he throws a robe on him and sends him back. Because that's all he wanted to see. He just wanted to see some miracle. So now he's back at Pilate. Pilate seeks to release Jesus. He believes he's innocent. He sees that these holy men are jealous of what Jesus is doing, that he has a bunch of followers and they just want him out of the way. And thus he asks the crowd, do you want Jesus or Barabbas released? So There's a tradition to release one person a year. Here he brings out Barabbas, who's a known murderer and generally not liked. And then you have Jesus. Obviously, through prompting, the people select Barabbas. This is the Day of Atonement. It's part of the eight-day Passover issue. The last day is the Day of Atonement, the most holy day on the Jewish calendar, known as Yom Kippur, where they actually receive the forgiveness of sins. This is what they're celebrating. In fact, over 230,000 lambs would be slaughtered in Jerusalem at the temple on this day to make intercession for the sins of the nation of Israel. Jesus, who is the Son of God, is standing there now with Barabbas. If we look at his actual name, his actual name is Barabbas, which means Son of the Father, referring to God the Father. So you have essentially the Son of God standing with the Son of the Father in the meanings of names. Jesus and Barabbas were taken to the place of judicial meeting. If you're wondering why I'm putting this, go back and read Leviticus 16. I know nobody, not the most interesting reading most of the time. However, if you read it, And take this trial with what you know of your New Testament. It will come to life. And I'm going to hint on a few things. I used to spend about 20 minutes on it. I won't do that to you today. Jesus was selected as the sin offering. That's where they select a sin offering or a scapegoat. Barabbas becomes the scapegoat. Jesus, we know, would take away the sin of the world. The scapegoat's assignment on that day is to carry the sin out of the city. He used to tie a black uh, black string around its horn, and they let it loose. Well, then somebody got the idea, what if this thing wanders back, it carries all the sin? So then they started running it from mountaintop to mountaintop, far enough away that they would then run it off a cliff and kill it so it could never come back. But Barabbas died about a week or within a month. I think it was about a week, though, after this day, standing up to the Romans again. Pilate has Jesus scourged. Isaiah 56, I gave my back to those who struck me, my cheeks to those who plucked out my beard. I did not hide my face from shame and spitting. Isaiah 53, five through seven. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned, every one, to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. A lot of that sounds like the same thing over and over, but transgressions. What's the difference between transgressions and sin or iniquities? because there is a little difference. I had to look it up before the study, so I mean... So, a sin is anything that separates you from God. A transgression is knowing you are doing something that you're not supposed to, and doing it anyway. It's the kid going to the cookie jar before dinner versus the kid saying the bad word he didn't even know was a bad word. You can kind of tell by the context everybody's used it in that you probably shouldn't use it, but there's some gray area there, but you know you can't take that cookie. That's kind of the good place. So his wounds are paid for our transgressions. Iniquities are immoral or grossly unfair behavior, according to Oxford Dictionary. So iniquities are actions but don't require intent. Transgressions are the stripes. Iniquities are the bruises, sins. His punishment was for our peace, us being able to go to By his stripes or the long gashes, by the scourging, we are healed. The whipping of Jesus heals us from our wounds. Yet he remains silent. In the matzah bread, the stripes, you have the brown stripes. That's why the stripes are there in the matzah bread. A lot of times, even when we are guilty, we decide we're going to put up a fight. Jesus is completely innocent and he says nothing. So, thoughts? Amen? Okay. 1 Peter 2.24 Who himself bore our sins in his own body on that tree that we having died to sins might live for righteousness by whose stripes you were healed. Once again. Jesus was led to the slaughter, but before his death, his blood was spilled, scattered, sprinkled, whatever you want to call it, in the praetorium. This is an important thing to remember if you go back and read Leviticus 16. Only the Gentiles were inside the praetorium, the Jews remained outside. Keep that in mind. So what's the scene inside the praetorium? Does anybody have any mental views of what we think it looked like? Many believe Jesus was scourged 40 times based on Jewish law. 40 minus 1 is the 39 that they could do the most of, but he's in the hands of the Romans who have no maximum limit. Many who were flogged or scourged by the Romans prior to crucifixion died before they ever made it to the cross due to the injuries inflicted during this time. Assuming that he was hit well more than 40 times for a reason that we'll go over here in a little bit, so, an entire garrison is called in for this event. That's at least one cohort, or of the Romans, that's 480 personnel. These are the soldiers that got a purple robe, crown of thorns, and a reed. He put the crown of thorns on him, put the robe around him, let him hold the reed. Then they, the they is implied, it's not exactly used, struck him in the head with the reed, which they had him holding prior and they spit on him. Keeping in mind the thorns of the crown are about two inches long. Those are the types of thorns that were. They weren't like your little raspberry bush that you see in the backyard. But these are these are intense. It's unknown how many times he was struck or by how many people, but we do know that he was wearing the crown of thorns when he was struck in the head with the reed. So how badly was Jesus beaten and scourged? Just as many were astonished at you, so his visage was marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. What that means in English is nobody could identify him. By the time he made it to the cross, most people wouldn't, no one would be able to say that was him unless they told you. And He was beaten more than any person ever lived and was essentially mutilated. And that's what marred means here, mutilated. The is released by the choice of the people and the high priest. And then when Pilate saw that he could not prevail at all, but rather that a tumult was rising, he took water and washed his hands before the multitude, saying, I am innocent of the blood of this person. You see to it. The washing of the hands actually falls right in line with Leviticus 16 again. For the Passover, the thing that the high priest is going to be doing here in just a little bit. Jesus is so badly beaten that soldiers make Simon of Cyrene carry his cross. When they arrive at Golgotha, known as the place of the skull, or Calvary, this is the same place that Abraham had Isaac when he was saved at the last moment, Jesus is given sour wine mingled with gall. Now that might not mean much, the purpose of the sour wine mingled with gall has a specific purpose. Does anybody know what that is?
1: Um, oh, no, no.
0: No. No. So vinegar of scarifying acidity that resulted from the acetaceous fermentation of a strong wine received a strong admixture of gall, which is a vegetable product. This is when it ministered in such small quantity on a sponge or hyssop as to just moisten the mouth and throat, parched and swollen to great tenderness, would by its irritating and rasping influence corjugate and constrict the throat and paralyze the vocal cords. In other words, this is what the Romans did right before nighttime, so that they could sleep, so that even if you were screaming, no, no noise would come out. And they would go around every so often at night, and do this. So you can take it sleep. And then they'd let it wear off in the morning. And we'll see why here in just a little bit. Jesus is placed on the cross. How do we picture this happening? Is this where you see him laying down? Like in the movies, they tie him and then they lift him up. It's possible. But we have to look at what the point of the cross is. What's the point of a Roman, Roman crucifixion overall? Now again, this is where... We're looking at a normal Roman crucifixion, not necessarily in specific Jesus's and trying to see if we can put things together. The cross was a means of control by torture. After conquering a location, the Romans would place men on crosses and leave them there as an example, so no one would dare rise against the empire. Death was not by suffocation as generally believed. It was by exposure and dehydration or sickness in those cases. Since it was used to make a point, the Romans wanted people to suffer for the longest time possible, and they had it down to a science, with most people generally lasting three to eight days out in the field. The longest recorded survival of anybody on a cross was nine days, and if they were sick or already wounded, they generally lasted anywhere from 24 to 48 hours, but very seldom less. These were professionals. This is what they did. Jesus dies in six hours. Even Pilate, when the report comes back, is surprised that he has died so soon. That should be a hint, though. There was no intention of him dying that soon. So why did he die so quickly? There's some reasons out there. He hadn't slept the night before. He stayed up all night praying. The prayers were mentally stressful to the point that he sweat blood. He was under a, heck of a lot of pressure. He's had no food since the night before, and even then it was the Passover meal, the Seder, and communion. He has severe physical injuries more than any other person. The main reason? He chose to die. He actually yielded up his spirit. So a vertical beam is generally placed into the ground, and then two posts are placed 6 to 18 inches high on either side, and slightly in front. The posts were for the person to stand on while they were then tying the crossbar, which the person had on them already, and tied around their waist under the rib cage to hold them there with a knot in the back so they couldn't untie it. Roman soldiers would do this hundreds of times in one day when they conquered an area. Generally, they had people dig their own holes because soldiers are lazy. They're not going to dig 200 holes. They're going to have 200 people dig a hole. then they're going to put the bar in, have them pound the posts in. Then they'll take over because it's really hard to tie a knot with your hands tied with crossbar. Then they would tie you to the bar. Thus, when they exported the cross with Jesus, it was most likely not in the cross form. This allowed the rib cage and abs to hold them up, and not three nails which have ripped out of his arms quickly, or three in his two in his hands and one in his, his legs. Then they removed the stepping post so the body was suspended. At which point, six inches, six feet, there's no difference. You're not reaching the ground. We're not told that he was tied around the waist. The nails were driven through the wrist and feet as a way to prevent escape or rescue. We were also driven in a certain place that would cause intense pain and suffering. This is not a primary way to hold a person to the cross. It's just that if you wanted down and your buddies came and the nails that came out the back were generally hammered at 90 degrees, so that if somebody did come through the night to try to rescue you and they cut you down, they were going to have to rip the head of the nail through your hand to get you off or make a whole lot of racket, in which case you would both end up dead at the hands of the Roman soldiers who were on guard. The thieves who were with Jesus are then placed on their crosses. Four Roman soldiers cast lots for Jesus' clothing. Psalm 22, 18, they divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they, class, they cast lots. 1,000 years after this is wrote down, it takes place. Jesus is now mocked on the cross. And there's an important familiarity about the tone of the mocking room. If we compare them. The temptations are the same at the cross as when Jesus is tempted in the desert. Now, when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. The question is, is the cross the opportune time? I think yes. Temptation one in the desert, Matthew four four three. Make stones into bread to end suffering of hunger. On the cross? Matthew 27, 40, come down from the cross, and your suffering on the cross. Temptation 2, pinnacle of the temple in Matthew 4, 5, throw yourself down. God will send his angels to save you. Matthew 27, 42, he saved others, save yourself if you are God. Temptation 3, the mountain, Matthew 4, 9, worship me and I will give you everything you see. Remember, that is not a veiled promise. We signed over the deed in the Garden of Eden, and he has it until Jesus comes back and recollects it. So it was a valid offer. Matthew 27, 42 through 43, they say, come down and we will worship you. Obviously, he tweaked it a little bit because it didn't work the first time. Let's give it a shot. Overall, I think it's pretty safe to say that Satan was at the cross. Any thoughts? Jesus is offered plain vinegar. This is possibly so he wouldn't die too soon, since he had rejected the vinegar mixed with gall. They're not being mean, giving him vinegar. Remember, water can kill people back then. And low-class Roman soldiers would drink vinegar as a drink. Jesus is then mocked by the thieves. I.e., Satan's still there. Then one of them decides this is probably not a good thing. Changes his mind, repents, and Jesus tells him, Today you will be with me in paradise. Darkness shows up at noon, generally the brightest day, time of day, and it lasts until 3 p.m. Jesus then says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Straight out of Psalm 22. In fact, early Christian Beliefs are that Jesus on the cross recited the entirety of the psalm, 22 22nd psalm, while on the cross. Jesus says, I thirst, and is given plain vinegar. Again, cheap drink used by low-ranking soldiers. Nobody's being mean. That's what they would have given. Question is, why did he need a drink then and not earlier? The answer is found in Psalm 22, 15. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. And my tongue clings to my jaws. You have brought me to the dust of the earth. Jesus says it is finished and died. All of a sudden there's an earthquake. It splits the temple veil in half from top to bottom. It was roughly 60 feet long and four inches thick. It doesn't just tear in half. Like we looked at. Before, it's not made in China. It's made very well. It's not just tearing, especially from top to bottom. A centurion who's guarding him says this truly was the son of God. I put a small g there because when taken in the true Greek language, it is the son of a god. And that makes sense, knowing that the Romans had many gods and the gods had children with women, thus demigods, So he's not saying Jesus was the son of the one true God. He's merely saying Jesus was the son of a God. Then the legs of the thieves are broken and Jesus is pierced with a spear. Romans only broke the legs if they had to leave or some other situation required them to stop watching those on the cross. Such as a military movement or maybe a period of unusual darkness followed by a large earthquake at the death of a man claiming to be God. Either way, on this day, the reason is being Jews, the bodies cannot remain on the cross and must be down by Sunday. Breaking the legs serve two purposes. One, you're not going to escape very well with two broken legs. Thus, they would die on the cross. Two, even if you are rescued, given the medical care of the time, you would be crippled for life and thus continue to remain an example. Another win for the Roman Empire. The risk of doing this too early was that your point of making people suffer as a point of control, they die quicker. We know that if you break the femoral, or the femur, you can sever the femoral, and that's the bleed to death rather quickly. That wasn't their good. So could this be why Jesus tells the one, today you will be with me in paradise? I don't know. Soldiers being soldiers, they used club to break the legs only if they had to. Again, it's heavy, and swinging it would be tiresome. Thus, they would test if they thought you were dead with a spear, which took much less effort, and any sign of life would, if it was found, then it would be followed with the club. Keep in mind, Jesus, when he speared, we're told comes out water and blood. Jesus is then buried. Saturday, we don't tend to celebrate anything. We just sort of go around... Jesus didn't just lay around, he was busy. We're told that he descends into Sheol. Sheol is two chambers the bottom of the earth. So the rich man in the story of Lazarus and the rich man, we're told that he goes to the fiery chamber, punishment, where non-believers go. Jesus goes there in separation and pays for our sin. However, the other side is known as Abraham's bosom, which is where Lazarus is carried to. This is a pleasant place where Old Testament saints were. Jesus, at some point, crosses the fiery chasm that is unsurpassable. And then he leads them out of the A lot of people miss this verse, 27. Matthew 27, 52 and 53. When he dies, this happens. And the graves were open, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised and coming out of the graves after his resurrection that went into the holy city and appeared to them. How many people knew that there were a bunch of dead people walking around the city along with him? I guarantee you, we have all read that, and yet it's one of those things because we think we know the stories we just go through. Now comes Sunday, tombs found open Without his body. His clothes are on one side. the shroud is on the other. There are two angels. Only one speaks. Some people see this as a contrary. Yes.
2: I, I was told, and I don't know if this is true, that the way that they sealed it even would be like this to where nobody would disturb it. Was that true? Yes.
0: Okay. They, they would sealed it. So okay.
2: when they sealed it, almost like they would know somebody messed with it.
0: And they also posted guards. Okay. But, cool. Thank you. In fact, we're told that the guards were bribed and they'll later kill. But they were bribed and that's how they kept people from letting it essentially take over like all his other miracles. Now, this is an image of the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant. Remember when Moses would talk to Jesus face to face as a friend, he would do so between the cherubim on the Ark. At one point, the Philistines steal the ark, lead it off, and every city they take it to, tumors start to grow. in these. Days. So they're like, screw this thing. Send it down the road. If it goes back to them, they can have it. If it doesn't, whoever's, whatever of our cities it goes to, you're stuck with it. It goes back to Israel. And they take the lid off to make sure that Aaron's rod and the Ten Commandments are still in it. And thousands of people, I believe 70,000 people died by the time they got the lid back on. And the question is, why? Because this is a sign of God's law covered by mercy. And when you remove mercy, you get the law. It's the best explanation I've heard. So Jesus goes to heaven to make atonement for all sin. Because sin started in heaven with Lucifer and not on earth with Eve. Furthermore, Exodus 25.9 says, Everything in the temple on earth is a copy of what is in heaven. So a true atonement has to take place in heaven. Hence, all these people wander around earth for a few... till so Jesus makes atonement in heaven and then the gates fly open. Now, when we die, as we see with Stephen, who's the first martyr, when you die... Straight way to heaven. Has this changed your view on Good Friday? Or Resurrection Sunday? Do we have any questions, comments, concerns? Yeah.
2: It's changed my view a lot because what I thought what I learned in Sunday school isn't exactly what all went down like you had mentioned earlier, because it's way different. Uh-huh. Reality is sometimes stranger than fiction, as they say. <laughs>
0: One of the things I think I I might have skipped over is when the Romans were pulling out his beard, the traditional way they would do it is they would take a stick. Yep. They would wind it in their beard, and then they would put a cleat with the metal cleats on their forehead and pull. And that would actually rip pieces of skin, sometimes entire cheek away, exposing jaw and teeth due to the severity of the pull pad. When it says he was disfigured more than any other person, I think... Well, it's not recorded that that happened. Again, I know this is not the most feel feel good for those of you who it's your first time. I swear they're not all like this. Um,
2: but I, for one, feel good because um, he gave all that for us to have mercy and atonement from when we did. You yeah. Know, I'm, of course, I feel, I mean, it sucks that I happened to him, but I feel great that he did it for all of us to make sure that it was going to go right for us. Yeah. So, Amen. You said there was two angels on one sport. What did the one angel say?
0: That's the one that said, go tell Peter. In Christ, the Christ you're looking Jesus you're looking for is no longer here. For he has risen. But remember the entire time through the gospel he's telling them. And we can see it because we know the end of the story. But he's going, I must be, I must be tortured. I must be crucified. I must die. I must rise again. And they're like, yeah. All right. Let's go. And then he says, i got to die. And Peter takes him aside and goes, no, 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 no. You can't talk like that. And he's like, mm. He keeps telling him, I'm going to die. I'm going to be tortured. I will rise again on the third day. They had there in their mind a preconceived idea of the Messiah. When he was reading Isaiah and he stopped at the comma, which has been there. It's a pause and it's been there for 2,000 plus years. It's a heck of a comma, but... The next part is him ruling as king. He came as a servant. He will return as king.
2: Just like when he came into Jerusalem, on that donkey, he knew. He knew that by the time he got to town, it says, we will love you in the town. But by the end of it, he goes, I will be sacrificed. And he kept telling, kept telling the apostles that. And they were like, ah, like you said, nah. And he was. He knew. As yeah. soon as he rode in on the donkey, he knew what was going to happen.
0: Right. Well, that's another one. I mean, you can... If we went back all the way to Palm Sunday, you would see that Daniel chapter 9 prophesies to the day that he walks in. Yep. Zechariah tells you how.
2: It was paved is what it says, yeah. So,
0: (laughs) something that we miss, when you would show up, David's sons rode on donkeys. And we read that, you're kind of like, why aren't these guys riding around on donkeys? They're the king's sons. Give him a horse. (laughs) Is he cheap or something? If you're a conquering general... You, you ride a horse. If you're a winning general, you ride a white horse. Hence, Revelation 19. He shall return, and we shall follow him on white horses. But if your reason for coming is peace, you ride a donkey. In those days. So by coming on a donkey, he's coming here. peace.
2: And if I'm, if I'm correct, they, the city accepted him at first, time I right? Yeah, absolutely. Then he knew, he was like, yeah, they will turn on me, and mm-hmm. he did. And that's when he was sacrificed, right? So imagine that. You know what I mean? You go into a city and you already know I'm going to go in here they're going to treat me great but then next minute they're going to turn on me and I'm going to be sacrificed. So, And he did it without question. He rode right in that city and he knew what needed to be done.
0: Yeah. And I mean there's several aspects. The Last Supper. The Seder. Yeah. Leviticus 16 in the, the whole trial. Thing. There are so many places where you can dig and just spend the entire study if you want. But it, it's crazy. It's it Defies mathematical logic into the probabilities. Yeah. Two cards got what
1: by like Adrian or something or the.
0: So yeah, you got to go to secular history, like Josephus. I don't remember exactly. Yep. Yes, yeah. I think it's in Josephus is the one. Josephus confirms him riding in on the donkey. He can see. He confirms a lot of stuff. The Romans, Eric, you've done some study into this. The Roman documents themselves specifically, yeah, specifically state about the the arrest, the crucifixion, and the guards, and that sort of stuff, correct?
2: The cleric because they kept calling him Jesus Christ, they basically thought Christ was the surname. And so the document it as Christ, why in the world would you have anybody else that would reference this name except yeah. one person following this story? So all of these things were kind of, you this was a great one. It's tied to together easily we to the base, uh, and, and then the, the reference to the names and places to tie the Roman documents back to, uh, to his ranks. Um So yeah, you can follow a lot of these things uh, through their histories as well.
1: I love that. It's such a small root and validity of the Bible. I didn't know that. She, I didn't know Barabbas was killed shortly after, and then those two guards. It doesn't surprise me, but that that was really interesting. Well,
2: um, I it, 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 it kind of makes sense, really, because there was no way in the world let no, or, or go ahead and just just let out the crowd and back up plan on take care of this guy, you know, in a day and a half. Yeah, great. Right.
1: Yeah, that was really cool. I didn't know did, Travis, you did a lot of good stuff. I did not. That was really neat. A lot of details I didn't
0: know were in there, and I love studying the and I learned a lot. Go. Cool. Anybody else's thoughts? Anybody else? Any other questions, thoughts, comments? Close us in prayer. Can you draw people
1: to you. I just pray this week if we go to our job, we'll do whatever. That we don't forget the huge price that you paid, God, that it would penetrate our hearts. Lord, the sacrifice you made for us on the cross, God, help us never to take that life. Help us to preach the gospel to ourselves every day. Thank you for your shed blood on the cross. Thank you for your great love and your great mercy. We deserve We deserve so much worse, but you sent your only son. For our sins. God, help us never to take that beautiful story lightly. We love you, Jesus. You're a papa. You're a father. And one day you're coming back to get us. And we're so excited. I so long for that day. I can embrace you. And just thank you. We love you, Jesus. Thank you for Easter. And just thank you for being our father. In Jesus' name, amen.